Well, it's good to see you again for another time together. We're going through our Sunday School lessons. We've been looking at different worldviews. Now, uh, just to make sure we understand, we're not talking about different religions here, even though they can lead to that, and they're certainly a part of that. We're talking about worldviews, how you look at society, how you look at other people, how you look at life, how you look at good and bad, right or wrong, moral, immoral, uh, that type of thing. And uh, these are the lenses, I guess. If we were to uh, put on glasses that had purple lenses, we would look around and say, hey, look, all the world is purple, and everything is a shade of purple. And uh, that's what this worldview does. It's how you look and how people look at those uh, things in life. And this affects us as believers, of course, and it affects the church. It's a threat to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why we want to try to uh, alert you to these things. These are things that are common in the world today. These are things that your children are being taught, educated in, schooled in. We're kind of being shepherded by the media to think this way. And this is part of my job as a pastor and a part of the job of the church to counter these kind of things. We're supposed to be salt and light. And so as a salt, we slow down and... Uh, kind of hinder the rottenness that we see in the world because of uh, sin, fallenness, depravity, all of that type of thing. And we also are the light. We expose some things and we show some things. Not too long ago, we, uh, it was a Sunday morning and I had come to church and Sammy and Mama Lou were getting ready to come. And Sammy happened to go back into a closet we normally don't go into. And she noticed that sheetrock was coming down and that there was water uh, in the closet, and we had problems with an air conditioner drain. It was an easy fix in terms of the drain, but then you got to get all of the other, you know, the sheetrock and all that mess put back together. And uh, it was something that had happened uh, over a fairly long period of time, don't know exactly, because it was a very, very slow drip, very, very slow. But it ended up causing, you know, quite a bit of trouble. In fact, in one closet, Back in a place where you couldn't even see, there was a little bit of mold growing. And the only way you could see the mold was to try to get into the closet. It had shelves, so you really couldn't do that very well. But you had to take a light, and you had to shine it on it, and sure enough, there it was. Well, that's the way a lot of this kind of stuff is as well. If the uh, things we've been talking about had come out 40 or 50 years ago in full force, Virtually everybody in America would have rejected them, but they come in slowly. It's like a slow drip, and it cumulatively begins to do its work and do its damage, and it grows, uh, the mold of all of this grows in the hidden places, in the dark places first, and most people don't even see it until the Word of God shines its light upon the problem and upon the destruction. And so that's what we're attempting to do. And the one we're going to talk about today is one that affects nearly all of us. And boy, it is it ever affecting churches right now. And it's called the worldview of pragmatism. Now, pragmatism is not entirely bad. For uh, example, most of us might be pragmatic in that if you have a dripping faucet and you can replace some um, O-rings in that and make the drip stop, then that's a good thing to do. You do what works. You do what makes things function properly. If your car needs a tune-up or something like that, you do it. You take care of those kind of things. That's practical. That's pragmatic. 
There are sometimes in relationships you do what is the pragmatic thing to do. You can either nag, you can either push a point to the point of destroying a relationship, or maybe you just decide, you know what, in as much as it's up to you, uh, depends on you, be at peace with all men. That's what Paul told us. Sometimes you just have to let some things go and let God deal with them, and that's the pragmatic thing to do. Now, in that regard, we don't really have an issue with that. That's just common sense. But what happens is, when that worldview dominates you, then it's the idea of, I don't really care what truth is. I don't really care what right or wrong is. I'm going to do what works for me. Have you ever heard anybody say anything like that? If it works for you, then go for it. It may be wrong, but if it works for you, go for it. It may be against what the Bible teaches, but if it works for you, I mean, what choice do you have? In the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 15, um, the Lord gives a command through the prophet to the king of Israel, who was King Saul. And he tells King Saul that he wants to bring his judgment against the Amalekites. And he said, and I want you to go to war with them, and I want you to destroy uh, them and their property and all of that. And this goes back to the Exodus when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness on their way to the promised land and how the Amalekites treated them. This is the judgment of God upon them. And so that's the command that he gives to Saul. Well, later on down in the chapter, um, Samuel is on his way to uh, see King Saul. And when you get down to verse um, 13, it says, Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I mean, this hypocrite is going to put on the religious, glad to see you prophet, and I'm walking with God and fulfilling the command of God, that, that kind of stuff. Uh, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? Okay, now Saul has to do some quick thinking in order to answer that. He just has trapped himself by saying, I did the commandment of the Lord. Okay, well now he's been caught. So what does he do? Quick on his feet. Verse 15, and Saul said, well they... See, he didn't have anything to do with this, apparently. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. I have no doubt that that's true. Listen, to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. You know what he was saying? Well, we basically, we mostly, we almost did everything like that. But he kind of betrays himself. Isn't it interesting that they saved the best? Now he's thinking that that's going to commend him. That this is for sacrifice. And oh, by the way, Samuel, it's the best. You know, buttering uh, the prophet of God up. So uh, what does Samuel have to say about this? These are very famous verses. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet. Sometimes, don't you want to tell people that? Just shut up, I guess we would say. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, speak on. What else are you going to say? So Samuel said, 
When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I mean, we might add the word mostly in here. And gone on the mission which the Lord uh, sent me and brought back Agag, the king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people of the pl- took the plunder and uh, sheep and oxen, the best of, of things which should have been utterly destroyed. There he is confessing to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Isn't it interesting? He keeps saying the Lord your God. It's interesting to me. So Samuel said, Has the Lord great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed or hearken or pay attention than the fat of rams that would be offered in the sacrifice. Verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Next time somebody calls you stubborn, think about that. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Now, what was it that Saul did that was so bad? Well, this isn't like he murdered anyone. In fact, this to me seems like, if you ask me to be on the jury, this is far less than anything that, well, King David did. The next guy that was favored of God. This this is nothing like what David did with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite, right? So uh, we look at this and we say, what's the big deal? What's really going on here? Well, this is something that is showing the heart of Saul. You remember the Bible says in 1 Samuel, when uh, Samuel is looking for a king, that uh, God looks upon the heart. God looks upon the heart. Outwardly, God's people may do some things that look like what lost people do. They may even be worse, as in David's case. But the difference is Saul's heart, even when he acted right, even when he acted obedient, was never toward the Lord. David's heart was toward the Lord. When he acted obedient uh, to the Lord, that was genuine, that was real, that was not hypocrisy, it was not a show. And when he sinned against the Lord... That was not really where his heart was. His heart was to go to the Lord. And that's why when he's confronted by the prophet Nathan, what did he do? Make excuses? See, Saul here, when he's confronted by the prophet for something relatively minor in a human sense, what does he do? He lies. He's defensive. He makes excuses. He comes up with something that he thinks is going to get him out of trouble when David is confronted by the prophet, thou art the man, he runs to the altar, he runs to the Lord. You see the difference in the heart. And it's not that we as Christians never sin, it's just that when we do sin, when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, we run to the Lord, not from the Lord. Now, what is Saul doing? He's taking the command of the Lord and making it fit what he wants to do. 
Saul has to make this work for him. Why go to the Amalekites and why uh, get rid of everything? Now, apparently it didn't bother him so much to destroy the people. But boy, we can't let these good sheep and oxen, I mean, that's Israeli talk for money, right? And we can't let that go to waste. And so when he's confronted with it, what does he do? He takes it and he tries to make it uh, the command of God, make an excuse for it so that it seems to fit and it seems to be okay. It doesn't seem to be as bad and it seems to be, well, practical or pragmatic. We saved the best, which of course they did, for the offering unto the Lord. I doubt that. I really doubt that. But uh, anyway, that's what he said. Pragmatism, then, if we were to give a definition of it, is uh, a utilitarian ideology that says something can only be true if the practical consequences of accepting it satisfies our needs, desires, and our wants. In other words, whatever it is that God says, it's not true simply because God says it or because God commands it. It's true only if it does something for me. In fact, I've kind of expanded on this a little bit. If you uh, follow the worldview of pragmatism, then how do you determine if something is right or true? Now, for a Bible-believing evangelical Christian, you know what we do? We go to the Word of God. We find out what God says about it, and that settles the issue. Uh, it used to be popular for people to say, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And I remember when I was probably 14 or 15, hearing Papa Sam say, God said it, that settles it, believe it or not. Now, I wasn't saved then, but that made an impression upon me, and that was a formation of my worldview. I am not a pragmatist in terms of my worldview, okay? The pragmatist looks at things like this. How do I know that it's true or right? Well, first of all, if it makes me feel something, then it must be good. If it, uh, and, and it's interesting, too, because I've seen people in church over the years that they don't care when a sermon is preached what they feel as long as they feel something. Some people like to be exhilarated. They like to be affirmed. They like to be built up. Some people like to be spanked. Some people like to be beat on. Some people like to have their quote-unquote toes stepped on. Isn't that right? It soothes their conscience. It doesn't change them. It doesn't do anything to make them better. It just makes them feel like I did wrong. I came in and the preacher romped all over me. Now I can go back out and do what I want to do. It doesn't really change their life. I just need to feel something. And that must be God. And that must be true if it feels right. If it feels good, do it, as they used to say. So that's one thing. The other thing that it is uh, truth if it fixes me. I've got this problem, and um, I, I'm addicted to pornography, and uh, it seemed like going to church and being in Sunday school and reading the Word of God didn't help me. But if I could find help from a Buddhist, if I could find help from a Hindu, if I could find help from a New Age person, if I could find help through any other thing, well, then I'll go that way and I'll do it because whatever truth is, it has to fix me. If it fixes me, then it must be okay, regardless of what God says about it. And then the third thing that I would say is 
if it's flexible enough. You see, one of the things that we find in the Bible is truth is what we would call absolute. It's always right, always wrong, always good, always bad, that type of thing. But the pragmatists, like so many other people today, they want the truth to be flexible, like putty in their hands, so that they can mold the truth into whatever it is they wish for it to be. That they can make it to be uh, acceptable to them and what works for them. You've heard people say, well, this is my truth. Well, we don't possess truth. It's either truth or it's a lie. It's either good or it's bad regardless of what it may do to you or make you feel or what the results might be, we go to the Word of God, and the Word of God is always the same. And so uh, life for the pragmatist is summed up by, by, like this. How's this working for you? Now the problem with that is, if you were to ask any of the Old Testament prophets at a given point in their ministry, how is this working for you? They would answer, it's not working. Well, why don't you just abandon it? Why don't you preach something else? Why don't you do something else? Well, they couldn't do that because they had the word of the Lord. But sometimes following God's will and standing for what he says is true is not always popular, nor is it pleasant, and sometimes it doesn't seem to work. There's an old uh, Chinese proverb that says, one generation plants the tree, the next generation enjoys the shade. Well, that's certainly true, isn't it? And uh, somebody said, when is the best time to plant a tree? Ten years ago. When's the second best time? Today. And sometimes we want instant results, and we want everything to be working for us, and many times God doesn't work that way. 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years of slavery when they were in Egypt. Does that mean God didn't care or that God was unaware or that God was busy with something else or that God was inactive? Absolutely not. But God's ways are not our ways. You remember that? His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. We can't attain them. And God is working on a very different level than anything we could understand. And so if we want instant results, how is that working for you? God's will and God's ways, well, they're not a microwave. They're not a microwave. You don't get instant results from them. And that's why the fruit of the Spirit and all of those nine things in there is listed patience. And we're not very good at that, especially in our day and age and in our culture. So let's talk about pragmatism. The first thing to understand about this worldview is that it's popular. The pragmatist always goes by what does everybody else think and what do they want? Can I jump on the bandwagon? Can I be a part of the movement? And they're not always this heartfelt, convictional person. Now right now we've got a lot of riots that are going on in uh, cities all across the United States. And you know what I think about that? I think that the uh, killing of George Floyd was unjust and that the uh, people that were involved in that or complicit with it, that they ought to be brought to justice. You, you can't make that right. You can't make that good. You can't excuse it. And I think that uh, according to our system of government, that people have the right to protest. It's a First Amendment right. But when it turns into uh, criminal activity, hurting people, destroying property, those type of things, that's a different issue. 
And my suspicion is that the people that are doing that, they don't really care about George Floyd or about the justice side of everything. It's just their opportunity to join a bandwagon. They're not convictional about anything. They just want to be involved in anarchy and looting and stealing, those type of things, right? And they're just on the bandwagon. Well, that's the way our world functions. It's amazing how styles change, isn't it? And when you look back and you see a picture from 20 years ago, you go, oh man, why did my parents let me wear my hair like that or dress like that? What was I thinking? Well, at the time you thought it was cool because everybody else thought it was cool, right? And now you don't think it's cool because everybody else doesn't think it's cool. That's kind of the way we work. Now, when it comes to fashions and silly things like that, it doesn't really matter a whole lot. But in this situation, when we're talking about truth and your worldview, it really does matter. Because we don't live our lives by how many uh, people, 70%, 60%, 51%, if they say it's right, does that make it right? And the answer would be no. We may be, and Jesus indicated that we will often be, as his followers, in the minority of things. We are the minority, the dissenting voice that is speaking up in uh, terms of good and bad, right and wrong, and morality and immorality. We are to stand against it. So we don't do things because of human approval. We don't just follow the crowd. That's dangerous. And we also want to make sure that we don't make ourselves to be appealing to those who are lost. Now, if they find favor with us because we do something good or right or helpful, then so be it. That's a good thing. We, we want to do that. But we don't tailor our life, our view of right or wrong, based upon the approval of society. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, I'm going to read this out of the New American Standard. It says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. And so the lost world is going to come out with the wrong view, the wrong appraisal, and the wrong idea about truth. And so if we're pragmatic and we're going to go with the majority opinion and what appeals to other people, uh, there are sometimes we may do that and get it right. But there's going to be an awful lot of times we're going to do that and we're going to be dead wrong because they have no way of knowing and operating on the truth as uh, we do. Secondly, the pragmatist not only goes by what is popular, but also by what is pleasing. What is it that is going to uh, elevate self? What is it that is going to cause the crowd to kind of applaud you and to speak well of you, to give you a lot of likes on Facebook, to retweet everything that you put on Twitter? What is it that's going to really do that? And that's the way pragmatists live their lives. It's everything they do is to elevate themselves. What they don't realize is every time we elevate ourselves, we are devaluing somebody else or something else. So um, we follow the group and uh, they kind of say, you follow us or else. And so we, uh, well, we see things like this. Um, When you listen to a commercial, maybe on the radio or watch it on television, uh, and they tell you, uh, this is, we can give you this car, for this amount of money and this interest rate for this 
number of months. And have you ever noticed when they get to the end, they get to that part that you can hardly understand what they're saying and they have to give you all of the qualifications for the terms and conditions and the exceptions. It's kind of like the fine print in a contract. Why do they have to do that? Because in our world where we live and we only live to please ourselves, it has to work for us. That I can buy a car for $30,000, I can finance it and promise to pay, sign the, uh, uh, the note, and then at the same time when it comes time to pay, well, that's not working for me right now. I want to drive the car, but I don't want to make the payments. That's why they have to repossess things. Now, obviously, there are conditions that might make that different, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about people who willingly break contracts. We're talking about people who willingly don't keep their word. Why? Because it was advantageous to us, to us when we made the deal, but it's not advantageous to us when we have to hold up our end of the bargain. That's why there are all kinds of things like that that go on, and there's divorce, betrayal, all kinds of disloyalty. In Matthew chapter 25, um, when Jesus is telling them he's getting ready to go to the garden, you remember Peter says, I won't deny you, I'll stand with you, and I will die with you if I have to. Everyone else may forsake you, but not me, Lord, you can count on me. Now, how well did that work? You know the story that when the pressure was on and when the problem came where Peter is confronted about knowing the Lord, well, all of a sudden he adjusts his truth for what is advantageous to him at the moment. That's pragmatism. That's pragmatism. Appealing to other people, saving your own skin. It's the kind of thing of making a better deal for you and doing what works for you instead of doing what is right. And thirdly, notice that it is practical. This is whatever works above what is right. This is the kind of thing to where people will violate their conscience, they'll violate their own sensibilities, and violate their own word because they have to do whatever is right at the moment, whatever gets the pressure off, whatever uh, makes things better for them. That's why people cheat to get money. That's, I mean, we could go on and on and on with that, of course, because truth is not the standard to live or die by for the pragmatist. It's adjustable. And they can lie, steal, deceive, destroy, break friendships, deny the Lord, and um, soften their convictions as they need to. They abandon sound doctrine, and then they feel vindicated when there are no immediate consequences. You know, they forget that um, it doesn't become true because it works, but it works because it's true. And see, in that we find that truth is the bottom line, the foundation for everything that we do, not for the pragmatists. And then fourthly, it's personal. They say, this is my truth. You have no right to judge me. You have no right to question me. Well, if it were just human to human, they would be right. But what the Bible tells us to do in Matthew 7, you know, it used to be John 3, 16 was the best known verse in America. Now it's Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be not judged. But they don't get the context of it and realize that the uh, scripture is teaching there that it's the measure you use to judge that is important. Now, if I'm using my personal opinion, my personal feelings, my gut, we might say, uh, that could be suspect. I might be right, but even a stopped clock is right twice a day, right? Um, it might be right, but God has given us an objective measure. The other day we were speculating at our house, how wide is our fireplace? 
And I thought it might have been about six feet. And you know how I solved it? I went and got the tape measure. And it was six feet and six inches. Well, that's much more precise than my guess, wasn't it? I was close, but I wasn't quite on it. And God has given us a tape measure called Bible, the Scripture. That's how we measure ourselves, which we ought to do a whole lot more of. And that's how we also can evaluate society. And we can evaluate good and bad and right or wrong, profitable and unprofitable. And we do that by the unchanging standard of the Word of God. But not for the pragmatist. It's my truth. It's whatever I want. Truth is adjustable. It's not uh, you know black or white or good or bad. Nothing's really true or false unless I think it is or unless it works with me. And truth changes with the times and with the situations. I'll close with a few verses of Scripture that I think address this pretty well. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man. It's his truth. But its end is the way of death. <clears throat> Matthew 24, 24. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders. In other words, seems to work. So as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul says, If anyone teaches otherwise, different than the Bible, and does not consent to wholesome words, again, the Bible, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words. See, you can argue over that and dispute because my opinion and my thoughts are just as valid as yours. That's why we have to go to the Word of God, isn't it? From which uh, come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, now listen to this, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. And the sad thing is in our world today, there are a lot of church members that are described by that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6. No commitment to the Lord, no love of the Word, and no standing on the truth. It's all expendable and it's all adjustable depending on how it fits them because godliness is a means of gain. Unfortunately, that describes a lot of preachers today. Church today, pastoring, is not a calling. It's an entrepreneurial exercise. And you do whatever you can to get whomever you can because you want their money. Always follow the money, right? And it's not about souls. It's not about people. And it's not about the glory of God. It's about how many people can we get to attend and how much money can we bring in. Joel Osteen was on a national a television program, he was being interviewed, and someone asked him, why Christianity? Why are you a Christian? You know what his words were? Quote, because it works for me, unquote. That's the way a lot of people live. That's the way a lot of people in church live. That's the way a lot of pastors live. That's the way our society is going. Do whatever you have to do. Do whatever works for you, and don't stand upon truth. But God has called us to be different, to stand upon unchanging principles and truths, the solid rock, we call it, a firm foundation, we call it, because what is right is right, and what's wrong is wrong, 
based upon what God has told us, not what we feel, not what it fixes, or, and there's certainly no flexibility in all of it. So we reject this notion of a worldview of pragmatism. Now we are pragmatists to some degree in the things that don't matter. But in terms of our worldview, that we reject that and we stand on the truth of the Word of God. Well, I hope that helps you and helps you understand the world in which we live and maybe understand a little bit more about the battle you have with yourself. That's the uh, way the enemy is always going to attack, right? And so uh, may the Lord bless you, and I pray that uh, you're staying healthy, and thank you for your support. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for viewing this. Thank you for your giving. We appreciate it so very much. And I'll just close by saying, and may the Lord bless you by leading you into his truth as he promised to do in John 17, 17. Thank you.